Father, the examples that you have left behind for us, they are at times stunning, but they are always instructive. We would ask, Lord, that the mistakes that the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, all the political groups of that day and age, those mistakes, Lord, may we never repeat, but may we learn from them. And also the things that we choose to do, may we be pleasing to you. May we follow your ways with our, our whole hearts. And Father, may we seek out forgiveness quickly when we err. For we know you are a God of forgiveness, one of grace, one of kindness, one of mercy. So, Father, as we look at your word, we ask that you would impact us, that it would sink deep, and it would produce the fruit you, you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 22. Lord willing, we'll finish up this chapter today. And we have been dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the problems that were just, they were epidemic through that leadership group. And the Lord was constantly battling against them. They were constantly testing him, and he would constantly respond in a way that would have a tendency to shut them down. They were more concerned about the political power. There were differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees on the resurrection and whether there is life after death in the spiritual realm. And the status of the Sadducees was one more like a, a monarch or the elite type and the Pharisees represented usually the common man. But there were flaws in the Pharisaical religion or their, their sect. They believed that confession and works without having submission in their own hearts was just fine. And the Lord says, no, that's not fine. He wants our hearts first. And then the confession and the works will follow from that. And Jesus said, listen and adhere to everything that they tell you according to the words of Moses, but do not imitate their lives. And so that's pretty much where we left off and of course they brought two uh, testings or attacks against Jesus they wanted to trap him in his answers and one was should they pay taxes to Caesar or not and of course we know that he said render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and under God the things that are God's and then the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead tried to trip him up with a question about marriage in heaven and, of course, we know that we're married to Jesus Christ in heaven and to no one else. And then we left off in verse 33. So we're going to pick it up in verse 34. And here is a test, and it, it's not so much an attack. It's really more of a genuine question. Because when we read it in another gospel, and that will be in Mark chapter 12, we see that there was a, a general inquiry into what Jesus thought. But here, 34... It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and Pharisees, the, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And, of course, I told you last week that this deals with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, to get a little more insight as to exactly what was transpiring here, you turn over to Mark chapter 12, and you, we have the same story here, but a little more information. In Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, and it goes on through verse 34, it says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And we can see here that his motivation was not to trip up Jesus, but to examine how he would interpret the will of God. A genuine question is coming here. It would be a test. Everybody would be listening to him. And there would be lots of people gathered around. And so since this teacher of the law noticed that, oh, this guy's wise. He, he knows a lot. He wanted to ask him another question. He said, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is the beginning of the most important prayer of the Jews. They would recite this usually in the morning and usually in the evening. It was called the, we might call it the Shema, but they would call it the Shema. It's Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, is what they would say. That's how they would start it, and that's probably the exact words that Jesus used when he would say this. It goes on to let us know that this is an affirmation of Judaism and a declaration of faith in one God. That's what was the distinctive mark of those who were Jews. Verse 30 says, Love the Lord your God. It's same in Mark here, chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And of course, this covers the first four and the last six of the Ten Commandments. First, loving God, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. And if we do that, we will be fulfilling the two greatest commandments. In verse 32, we see this, this man respond, Well said, teacher, the man replied, You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And here, Jesus is impressed. He says, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. He was able to respond to all the questions, all the trip up, all the tax that would come towards him in such a wise fashion and right lucid to the point that they could not respond in any way whatsoever. Now, this kind of has us focus ourselves. What kind of question or questions would you ask God if you had the chance in person? For instance, if... Jesus was hanging out over at Lindo Lake. And I think he might choose Lindo Lake. I don't think necessarily he would go down to La Jolla or, you know, some other uh, more well-to-do place. He'd probably go to those who are poor. He might go down to Children's Hospital. He would go to those kinds of places. And if you were over at Lindo Lake and you just happened to be walking around some of the sidewalks down there and you saw him sitting there and you recognized him and you knew who it was, 
and you walked up to him, if you had a question, what would you ask him? Would you ask him, what's my name? No, you wouldn't ask him something like, he knows, I already know your name. Hi, Bill. You know, as I'd approach him, something like that. But what would you ask him? And you know, this question was asked to several different people. I have 18 questions that have been asked by people, or these are questions that they would ask God if they had the chance to sit right down and give him a question. Of course, we wouldn't have time for a lot of questions if he was here on earth. In heaven, we'll have all of these questions answered. But these are the types of questions that people ask. And these come in groups of five except the last three. Here's what one person said that they would ask God. Why is religion full of hypocrisy? That's number one. Why do you allow suffering? Now, in the men's group, we've talked about the suffering. It's like, why is there evil? And we've gone through all of that, and the men, I think, are equipped in order to answer that. The third question this particular person asked is, why are we here? Like, what's the meaning of life? Number four, do we really exist, or is this just an illusion? Kind of like the matrix, you know, you're a copper top battery, that type of thing. Is that really what's going on? And number five, can God or can he commit sin? And is he omnipotent? That first part of the question, can he commit sin? You look at Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam was the first Adam. Adam was perfect and he sinned. Jesus is the second Adam. Is Jesus able to sin? And when we would ask this question back and forth in seminary, there were several different opinions. One was, absolutely not. Jesus, he cannot sin. He just can't do it because it's not in God's nature. Does he have a human nature? Well, yes, he has a human nature. And so it kind of came around to, well, Jesus in his human nature had the potential to sin, but did not. In his God nature, he could never sin. And so how do you reconcile that? I have no idea how to reconcile something like that. It's just impossible for me to grasp that. But he had to be made a man in every way, shape, and form that we are human beings. And he was tempted because he wanted to sin. If you don't want to sin, you're not going to be tempted, right? And so anything that would come along that might be a temptation to somebody, maybe it's not for you. You're not even tempted. You can just simply walk away. Well, and Jesus was tempted in every way, which means his flesh, his earthly tent that he dwelt in, he had the tendency to want to do those things, but he never did. And so he is able to relate to us. So that was the first five questions here. Here's another group of five. It's, Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world, which is like one we just had? Will God really forgive all my sins? There's only one sin now that Jesus will not forgive, and that's the sin of unbelief, that Jesus is the Messiah and able to save us. What does the future hold for me? Well, what does God want from me? Aren't all religions the same? Now, these are questions submitted by individuals that would want to get an answer from God. And then I I found this uh, one page that dealt with these questions from people from India. 
not people from the United States. The first question is, why didn't you kill Satan on the very day he made Eve eat that apple or Eve ate the apple? Humanity couldn't, uh, excuse me, humanity could have been saved from losing the direct connection with you and Satan's endless traps of deception. So why didn't God just destroy him? Why didn't he prevent that from happening in the first place? Second question. Remember, this is from India. Why did Jesus Christ come as a common man and not as the king of kings? He could have established his eternal kingdom in his first coming itself, and you could have punished us according to our sins rather than punishing him. Why did he do it the way that he did it? Why didn't he just set things up the first time? The third question. Why is it you created another generation from Abraham's son Ishmael who do not believe in Jesus Christ but worship you in a different name? Now, there's all kinds of problems with that question, but that's a genuine question coming from somebody who's probably a Hindu, which is the next question. Can you explain to me the concept of Hinduism? They worship lots of gods while you say you're the only one God. Who sent them? the deities, and what was their purpose? And if they existed, why is it not mentioned in the Bible? Now, see, these are genuine questions that people want to know the answers to. Uh, Here's the last one of this section. If there is a judgment day for all of us, then what is karma? Is it even real? I think the existence of one signifies the abolition of the other. Now, I love these kinds of questions. I would love to sit down and talk with an individual like that. The last three are, why do you have a history of genocide and so much of your emphasis is placed on torture and death? That seems a little pathological to me. Now, this guy's being honest because if you don't know what the Bible has to say and how to interpret it, you're going to come up with questions that you don't understand. So obviously this individual has not dug into the Bible. Second uh, to last question, why did you send yourself to torture and kill yourself to save us from yourself? The logic seems a little odd to me. Now this is somebody who has spent time mulling these things over in their head. Why do you tell people what to eat and and what their clothes can be made of but somehow forget to outlaw slavery. So you're just going, wow, these these are great questions. Questions that we should have an answer to. If you know somebody, whether it's from India or some other country that comes here, we need to have responses to what their questions are. If they're Buddhist, if they're Muslim, if they're Hindu, if they're Jewish, whatever religion they would come from, Baha'i faith, that's in the United States a lot, uh, we would be well served if we have this under our belt. Now, Jesus was the Word of God. And so he could speak the Word of God. The entire Bible, that is Jesus. That's how he's represented to us. He has spoken us to us in these last days by his Son, which is the Word of God. And if we have this, we're able to give a response. We could even lead people into the kingdom. And so all of these guys showed up, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Rhodians. They wanted to ask Jesus questions, but they did it with impure motives. 
They had specious arguments ready to go. And they wanted to make sure that Jesus was taken down. And at some point you would have thought, well, maybe he's not quite the guy we think he is. Maybe he is who he says he is. But they never arrived at that point. So almost every one of these questions has a reasoned biblical response. Just as Jesus answered the question of the Jews, we should be able to answer most of the questions people would want to ask about God. And his word, he says it's sufficient. Second Peter chapter 3, or 1 verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory or his own glory and goodness. So God's word has it. It has the answer for everything. And remember those four areas that I've talked to you about frequently in the past, where we came from, our origin, what is right and wrong, morality, meaning as to why things happen and what takes place and for what purpose, and also destiny. And if there's another one that we could add to that, some people have said identity. Who am I? And if we have those five bases covered, we will serve the Lord well. But we have to study to show ourselves approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Going on in verse 41, Jesus has a question for the Pharisees here. Since the Pharisees and Sadducees and Rhodians are asking Jesus questions, now he has one for them. And he frequently did this. If somebody asked him a question, he would say something like, answer my question and then I'll answer yours. And he would give them a question. And the reason, and I like that type of interaction because it causes the person to stop and think about their question And is there an answer that would help them lead to the answer of their own question if they answer the one that Jesus would bring? And it's a great way to get the gears spinning in the mind. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so he's just shutting them down. Now, on the face of this, it's hard to determine, well, what exactly is he asking him? Would you call your own son Lord? Well, remember the story in the Old Testament? This guy named Joseph. He had 11 brothers. And some sisters, obviously, were in there. But 11 brothers. And his parents came and bowed down before him. Remember he had the dream of the sun and the moon and the sheaves that were out there. And they were all bowing down to him. And he was kind of ridiculed at the point, at that point. So if something like that happens, like if your son or daughter became president, would you come in and call him by the first name or would you come in and call him Mr. President or Ms. or Mrs. President? You would probably address them as the president. If they became a king or a queen, would you address them by their first name or would you call them king or queen? Well, it's conceivable that you would probably call them by their title. But that's not what he's asking here. 
what he is saying, actually, you, you should probably turn over to Psalm 110. This is where Jesus goes in the Old Testament to point out this is the basis of his question. And the Jews, the teachers of the law, would have been very familiar with Psalm 110. And I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to explain it. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is where Jesus quoted. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the wound of the dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and, sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from the brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So there's two individuals that are being talked about here. He calls the one Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. If you understand what's being talked about in Hebrew, it makes perfect sense what Jesus was saying to these Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Lord, and the word is Jehovah, said to my Lord, Adonai. Adonai is a term almost exclusively used for God. And so how is it that David called his son Lord Adonai, God. That's what he presented to them. And of course, at that particular point, the realization should have just flooded over them that the Messiah is God. But they didn't want to, either because of their stubbornness or their ignorance or the pressure of those who are around them. They failed to grab hold of what it was. At that particular point, their jaws should have dropped to the floor and they would have said, you are calling yourself God. You've done all these miracles. You've raised people from the dead. Nobody can answer a word against you. Obviously, you're the real deal. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God, the Son of Man, the messianic phrase that was given through Ezekiel, the Son of Man. And they didn't do it even after all that. And that's why it says after that point, no one dared ask him another question. <laughs> he just said he's God. <laughs> oh, and nobody's able to refute him. What are we supposed to do here? I don't know. Let's go talk about it. And then somebody like the, the high priest would come and say, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. Somebody has to die for the nation. Of course, he prophesied in saying so. And, and so that's the dilemma that he gave to them. They could not answer. If they did, they would have had to say that Jesus was Adonai. That Jesus was God in human form. And they certainly were not willing to do that. It's, if you rephrase it, it would be like God the Father says to God. Or God Yahweh says to the Lord Adonai who is also God. David is essentially calling the Messiah God because Adonai is most exclusively another name for God. And when we say Adonai, when we call Jesus Adonai, we're calling him God. And it would have been appropriate at this point to reflect for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus performed the many miracles, raised people from the dead. He gave excellent answers to every question and objection from the leaders of the Jews. He answered them so well that he put to rest any further questioning. The Pharisees and the Sadducees 
could have said, you have proven yourself beyond a shadow of a doubt, and now we submit to you as Messiah, but they would not. Again, it was because of their stubbornness that they held on to, their own pride, and probably the pressure that was around them. And for us, you know, we reflect on this. Uh, Lord, uh, help us that we are not so stubborn and unwilling and full of pride that we would not first submit to the rule of the Lord in our lives. That would be number one. Second, to hold to his teaching. And third, never fail in doing what he has called us to do. In other words, to be disciples. The only reason we don't do these things, and I'm in this category too, I, I say we, the first person, plural, is because of pride. It's because of arrogance. It's because of I want to place myself on the throne. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. I want to plan everything. And God, yeah, you can be on the side here and I'll pay attention to you every once in a while and talk to you. And God says, no, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how God wants us to love him. Now, lastly, that we would also not fail to recognize that God has done all he has done for us and what he has gone through. You know, he's given us creation. I don't know about you, but it, it, if you've had a chance to travel and you just look at the world and how beautiful it is, I've had this happen to me and some places have been so beautiful that they've actually taking, taken my breath away. You know, they talk about that in love. Sometimes you see somebody and you <laughs> can't quite breathe, you know, that type of thing. But you can see God's creation and the same thing takes place. You know, the guys who landed on the moon, they claim to have a spiritual experience. Can you imagine that? Landing on another planet and walking around and God put that one up there and it's so delicately balanced. And he gave that to us. He gave us the water. He gave us the hydraulic cycle where water's evaporated and it falls over land. And, you know, like hurricanes, these hurricanes come in and do devastation and it's horrible for people. But there is one good thing about hurricanes. It stops a drought. It brings on the water and, and it replenishes the land. Now, I wish it wasn't quite so severe that that took place, but it's the way it is. We live in a world that is full of sin, but he gave us this place to live and it's a wonderful place. He also gave us prophets to teach us. He gave us grace and mercy. He gave us his spirit and every good and perfect gift is from the Father of lights, from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadow. He chose us to give us birth through the word of God, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He intended good things for us. And if we just submit to his will, those good things will be ours. Even though we live in a fallen world and we have to die and get new bodies, it's still all good. God has nothing but good things for us. Now going on into chapter 23, here Jesus is pointing out in verses 1 through 12 that the Sadducees and the Pharisees had four things. One, an altered view of authority. Number two, a malign view of ministry. Number three, godless view of greatness. And number four, an affinity for accolades. And I'll explain all of these. But the first one, an altered view of authority. Jesus said to the crowds and his, to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now, I always like to look up phrases like this and some verses in 
alternate versions of the Bible. And the NAS, New American Standard, says the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. This, the Living Bible, now there's some translational problems in there, but every once in a while I like to go to it and look what the Living Bible has to say. It says, you would not think these Jewish leaders and these Pharisees were Moses, or you would think that these Jewish leaders and Pharisees were Moses, the way they keep making up so many laws. And, and so you kind of get a flavor of what the intent of the passage is by going to these other versions of the Bible. And so the Pharisees consider themselves to be the final authority even over the word. Now there is one religion, a Christian sect, that does that. That the human being is considered the final authority over the word. Do you guys know which religion that is? It's the Catholic religion. The Pope, if he speaks, ex cathedra, that's it. That is the new scripture for everyone. And I've told you this one several times before too. Uh, Dr. Donald Thorson, who is my theology teacher in seminary, he wrote a book called The Westland Quadrilateral. And he said there's scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And every church uses those four things in order to determine how the church should be formed and how it should act. Here, it's scripture. Second one, is reason because you have to reason through the scriptures it, you can't just read the scripture and take it face value and not reason through it we have to do that steve just asked me a question in the foyer because he was reading about forgiveness and he said well you know are we just for to forgive and forget everything that's there and not install some kind of wisdom and you know what if there's some real problems that we have to take into account when our relationship with them has been broken i said well you know, we want to use common sense. You don't do something that would be foolish or add to the problems in the future, but as far as the relationship, your interaction with the person, when forgiveness is there, you don't let that interfere with your relationship with the individual. And so we reason together. He goes, oh, okay, I was wondering about that. It seemed just like you didn't have it in there. And, and I said, yeah, that's, that's how we do it. Now, that's what we want to do. Scripture, reason, and then the next two, it depends on which Calvary Chapel you're in. Tradition or experience? Most of the time, it's experience. And tradition is on the low rung. Now, it's just the opposite in the Catholic Church. Tradition, it's way up there. It's right at the top. And experience and scripture, well, you know, they, some would say, no, scripture is number one. Well, you got the Pope and you got your tradition too that you hold on to. And they're not the only ones. The Lutheran Church does that. And by the way, we have traditions. You know the traditions around here. You know the order of the worship. You know pretty much what I'm going to say, when I'm going to say it, and when you cross the aisle, and when you say hello, and when you turn around behind you. These are our traditions. I stand up here, you sit down, we have a closing song, and then we all get up, and amen, and we clap, and we walk out. You know, that's our tradition. That's what we do here. And then we have Bible studies. It's a tradition. We have it. And we could change it around. If we did, everybody would be upset. Like, why are you doing this? What if I told everyone, next week, come in, don't sit in the same seat? That, that could present some real problems, right? Because we have our traditions. We like things the same. But Scripture is number one. And we want to hold to what Scripture has to say rather than tradition, especially experience. 
the Pentecostal church, they use experience as number one. And they would say that new revelation has come to us. It's been our experience that God is speaking to us through the Spirit. And this is what we're supposed to do now. And there's a lot of practices that go in that actually violate what Scripture has to say. For instance, the speaking in tongues. We believe that speaking in tongues is a gift that is still for today, but it is a sign for unbelievers. It is not a sign for believers. But it's been taken as you're spiritual if you speak in tongues and therefore more spiritual than those people who are around you. And that was a problem in the Corinthian church. And Paul admonished them in the Corinthian church. No, I'd wish you would rather speak a word of prophecy rather than in a tongue, even though tongues exist. And they were assigned for unbelievers. And there's a whole study around that. And so uh, two are at the most three are supposed to speak in tongues. And with that, there always must be an interpretation. But I've been in churches. I grew, not grew up, but I spent my first church experience was in a church where everybody would bust out in tongues. And I'm going, what? This this is weird. And even Corinthians says, if you do that, people walk in and think you're crazy. So don't be doing that. But the experience in some churches like the Pentecostal church will be first and foremost. And so we just want to make sure Scripture is number one. In these last days, God has not spoken to us through tradition. In these last days, God has not spoken to us through experience. Now, experience, if you have that and it matches up with Scripture, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen? It's good? We can do it that way. But we don't want to take experience and force it into Scripture. Just like a square peg in a round hole. I'm going to make this fit. Whatever I have to do, get a bigger hammer, that type of thing. And, and that's called eisegeting. And we don't want to do that. We want to exegete the scriptures. And so their view of authority, it was altered. They had an altered view of authority. They considered themselves to be the final authority and not the word. When Moses was alive, they, did have, uh, they didn't have the Torah. And they had only Moses and they looked to him for guidance and authority. And he would sit down in a seat and he would judge. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought, well, we're now sitting in that seat rather than having the word of God be number one. And they're sitting in that seat, and it's in a figurative sense. They didn't keep Moses' seat and have it in Jerusalem. It's just a place where he would make a ruling from. And, you know, if they ruled like Moses, Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And that was just the polar opposite of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. And I guess as a rule of thumb, we are never to place ourselves in a position of authority. Let God, working through others, appoint us. So we're never to seek after those things. But it is God who comes along, and he's the one that appoints. Even Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent him in matters related to God, to other gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins for the other people. Now, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. And so whatever position of authority you might ascribe to, that you, hey, I want to do that. Just serve. Just be the lowliest servant. And if God wants you in that position, he'll raise you up 
through the service. We are, and we are never to think of ourselves as superior, but only as servants. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought themselves to be superior. They looked down in a condescending fashion on the people. They didn't know what they were doing. And by the way, the Christian church did this on purpose. They kept the word of God from the people so they could remain superior. And this is one of the sins of the Christian church coming through the universal church of the Catholic church. And then when they would start translating it, like John Wycliffe and people like that, they would translate the Bible. They killed him because they translated it. Martin Luther, you know, he made a translation. They wanted to kill him because they did that. And the, it, the scripture went to the common person. And because the word of God is for everybody, that, but they would hold on to it and they would not distribute it. We're to distribute it freely to everyone we can possibly get it to. But that was a time in church history. It wasn't so good. They wanted to be in that seat of authority to be able to dictate what was right and what was wrong. And God says, don't do it. Don't seek after that. Don't seek after those positions. Secondly, they had a malign view of ministry and life in general. Verse 4 says, they tied heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So if you think somebody, or if you think there's something that needs to be done, we're just supposed to do it. <clears throat> you know, if, like, for instance, the physical building here. You're walking around, you, you say, oh, that, that's an issue over there. Oh, that board's rotted over there. and Oh, look at the cobwebs over there, or that window needs to be cleaned over there. You could go to somebody and say, could you go and clean that window or wipe away those cobwebs or paint that room or do whatever when you could probably do it yourself? And you might say, well, I don't have a key. Well, come see me. I'll just make sure somebody has a key or has access, you know. We can just do that. But that's how the body of Christ is supposed to operate. And if somebody, like in my position... If I came to somebody in the church and said, you know, I need you to volunteer for the Lord here at the church and I need to make sure that you're here at least 10 hours a week accomplishing this because after all, it works for your benefit in heaven. You'll store up the treasure up there. You'll send it on ahead. We all know that this is good. So if you just meet me on this particular day, I'll give you everything that you need to complete these tasks. Wonderful, great, God bless you, and walk away. And if I'm not willing to do that myself, like if, for instance, I went to somebody and said, hey, those toilets need cleaning in there. I'm supposed to be the one that grabs the brush, gets the clothespin, and goes and cleans the toilet or, or does whatever. That's the style of ministry that Jesus left for us. We're not to place ourselves high and make everybody else our underlings. And a good book on that is the Jesus Style by Gail Irwin. The men will eventually be going through that. And so, in other words... Do what the Lord has prepared us to do and that which we have a desire to do. If we seek after the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, he says he will give us the desires of our heart. And that doesn't mean he will give us a nice car, a nice home, and health. It means he will give us his desires that will become ours. So if we seek after him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, his desires become ours and we start doing what he wants. We fall in line with his will rather than performing our will. And our motivation for this 
it shouldn't be because, well, if I don't do this, I might not be saved, and then I'll burn. Well, I don't want to do that, so I better get out there, and I, I want guilt to be my motivation. Absolutely not. Our motivation needs to be Christ and how he has loved us. They've done so much for us. How, would you feel indebted to somebody who has come along, paid off your mortgage, if you have a mortgage, and walked away and said, I want nothing from you, and you would want to... Let me do something for it. Let me buy you a coffee at least or you know, fix you a meal. You would feel obligated to them if somebody did that. Would that not be a great day? Oh, that would be a wonderful day you know, to have no mortgage, no car payment, no taxes. All of those things. You'd, be, you'd start dancing around and doing the funky jig, whatever it was. You would just have a great time. Jesus has done so much more than paid off our mortgage or our car. He has given us eternal life. And because of that thankfulness, then we go out and we serve. And we serve as much as humanly possible within reason, using wisdom and common sense, that type of thing. But that's what God has called us to. And our motivation is not to be under obligation or pressure. And if we operate in a manner serving God as he wants us to, it will be a joy and not a burden. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a trial. Are you guys familiar with the scripture, as iron sharpens iron, so does man sharpen man? If you put two people together long enough, there's going to be some sparks. If they're together long enough. It just takes a little bit of time. Do you have to chew with your mouth open all the time? You know, just stuff. Like, it's just going to irritate you. It's going to grate on you. And, and the Lord says, hey, that's going to work for your benefit. It's going to teach you patience and long-suffering, all of those things. But it's going to work for our good. As a matter of fact, all things work together for good, Romans 8.28. So the burden of service is to be borne by the leaders, not delegated to others. And the leaders are never to call upon the body and tie heavy loads upon them, whether it be by a lifestyle observance or a heavy task in ministry. I know that there are churches that they would tell women, no makeup, no jewelry, long sleeves, no ankles, dark socks, high boots if you'd like, underneath the dress that goes all the way to the ground. Men short hair, tie, white shirt, and coat. And you need to have a bunch of them because you're going to be here five days a week. You know, it's like, really? That, that's what Jesus wanted us to do? And it's not what Jesus wanted us to do. We're not supposed to judge by the outward appearance. We're supposed to judge by what's in the heart and out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And so you judge a person by what they say and how they conduct their lives. So leaders in the body of Christ are to be the first when it comes to meeting needs of those who are around us. And those who willingly volunteer will be like the deacons spoken of in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. It says, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. If you're ever doubtful, well, am I really saved? Well, start serving others. You'll find out. You'll get this great assurance that, wow, Lord, I feel so blessed. It was hard, but I feel so blessed on the inside that I'm able to do this. And by the way, there's always people who cannot. 
they just cannot do anything anymore. You know, you start getting older, you have to use readers. Your teeth fall out, the hair falls out, the, uh, the joints creak a little bit, and you can't do quite as much as you used to be able to do. And that's understandable. But whenever we have the ability and we have the capability to go out and do something for the Lord, let's just go do it. Open every single door that is in front of us. And if we do that, we will go against the malign view of ministry. We will actually fall in line with what proper ministry is. So they had an altered view, these Pharisees and Sadducees of authority. They had a malign view of ministry. And then they had a godless view of greatness. In verse 5, Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. Just like, yeah, I know. Just tell me. Yeah. I, and that's what they would go out and do. They would seek after stuff like that. Uh, for instance, <clears throat> There's this uh, one phrase that several pastors use, uh, like the reverend. The, the first one that comes to mind is the reverend Al Sharpton, right? The reverend Jesse Jackson. They call themselves reverend. I reject that. I, I don't think that they should. There is only one who is reverend, and that is Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, where does it say that? Well, let me tell you. Psalm 111, verse 9. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. I'm sorry, my name is not reverend. My name is just Bill. My name is not to be lifted up and glorified. It is Jesus Christ who's supposed to be lifted up and glorified. So anyone who calls themselves reverend, now I'm getting into a little stick of territory here, but it's just the way it is. You know, I'm just going to give you the word. Jesus Christ is the one who is reverend. We are not reverend. What are we? Doulos. Slaves. That's who we are. Servants. That's who God appointed us to be. And if he wants us to be a little more than a servant, even if he raises our standing in a position, we're still supposed to be the servant in that position. We are representing the king. And so that's how God depicts it for us. Also, the word reverend, it means to fear, to revere, to be afraid, to stand in awe, to be awed. And, and nobody on this earth, and I'm going to go, oh, I'm so afraid, please don't. No, we're not supposed to do that. All men are equal in God's sight. By the way, all men and women are equal in God's sight. Once we die, that's the great equalizer. Everybody is going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we're all supposed to give an account at that time. And that should cause a little trepidation, a little fear, a little angst in there. Like, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Because I also want to give a good showing before the Lord that I've been his good servant. So Mark chapter 9 verse 35 also says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be very last and the servant of all. Now, here's a phrase for you. The pursuit of prominence produces precarious pitfalls. Following after fame only feeds the flesh. I'm going to say that again for you. The pursuit of prominence produces precarious pitfalls. Following after fame only feeds the flesh. And that's what these individuals would do. They would want to seek the place of honor, which leads us to the next point. 
affinity for accolades. Now, accolades are, they want titles of honor, praises, tributes, awards, compliments. I once, when I was uh, in college, I had this one counselor. His name was Richard, and he, he sent me something in the mail. Back then, we had this thing called mail. Uh, and it would be a letter would be sent and there'd be a stamp on it, that type of thing. Now we have electronic email and that's where most of our correspondence takes place. But he sent me a letter in the mail and he, he started out the title of it. Now I'm just a, a runt in college and he says, the most honorable William Botker. And my name is not William, it's Bill, but he put that down. And then he said, Ph.D. DDS, uh, doctor of theology. I mean, he just, all of these things he put on there. And so whenever it traveled through the mail, people would look at that and go, oh, who is this guy? Well, he was just playing a joke on me, obviously. And, but people seek after honor like that. Some people, and you know, I don't mean to offend, but some people have an I love me wall where all of their degrees and all their awards, it's all up on a wall somewhere or in a, a hutch that's up there and you can see it. It's, it's kind of like a little shrine, probably a couple of lights coming down through and you know, just making it wonderful. All the rest of the lights in the house are off, but that one is still on. And God says, no, we're nothing. We're dirt. We're dust, so to speak. In verse 8, he says, But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you must be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Of course, the term rabbi means my great one, or my honorable sir. So if you're calling somebody a rabbi, that's how you're referring to them. And father, certainly it's not wrong to call one's biological father, father. If you go home and say, dad, I can't call you dad anymore. I can't call you father. I'm just going to call you friend. All right. He's not talking about dad, but it is wrong to use it when addressing a spiritual leader. Paul referred to himself as a spiritual father because he had begotten people through the gospel, but he did not ask them to use that term when addressing him. Now, if anybody could be called father, it could be Paul, uh, anyone at all. But he called himself a doulos, a slave. And teacher means guide or instructor or leader. No, you see, the whole point is we are to be servants. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees just couldn't stomach that. You know, our church here, we're called Calvary Chapel. Calvary comes from a word Calvarium. Calvarium means skull. We are skull chapel. Skull chapel is full of a bunch of formerly dead people. And now we are alive. And that's why it's called Calvary Chapel. The place that was formerly filled with dead people who were now alive following Christ. And so we reckon ourselves as nothing. We reckon ourselves as servants. So as a summary here, we have, number one, we should never seek after a place for ourselves in a position of authority. Let God, working through others, appoint you. Secondly, 
The burden of service is to be borne by leaders. And thirdly, the pursuit of prominence produces precarious pitfalls. Following after fame only feeds the flesh. That's what God has told us through these first 12 verses here, that everything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did and practiced, we are supposed to avoid. St. Augustine had a couple of quotes. He said, It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. He also said, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds? Lay first the foundation of humility. And when we become aware of our humility, we've lost it. And so we're to cultivate the humility. We're to consider others better than ourselves. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's the encouragement that Paul gives to us. My prayer for all of us in here is that we're able to walk in the newness of life by the Spirit of God, always striving for being humble, never wearing a button that says, I'm humble, but being able to demonstrate it by the works that are produced without seeking any type of accolade, without seeking any kind of title, doing it without expecting any type of praise or repayment. It is Jesus Christ who will do all of that for us. May God strengthen you in this endeavor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they made so many mistakes and we are prone to those same mistakes and have in fact violated many of these teachings that you have brought. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for the pride that we possess on the inside. We ask that you would help us to truly be servants, be disciples as you have asked us to be, be willing to wash the feet of others. And Lord, we know we can only do this under your strength and not anything that we muster from the inside. For we are sold to sin. We have sinful natures. But Father, bless us with strength by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said...